Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum, a Makan Shah, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winter Fame. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Pashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestian Echo. The Entolamaginom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. You're listening to the best of the Indo Daily. Gardaí have moved to calm public fears about the release of sex offender Larry Murphy by saying they're confident they know of his whereabouts. I've been dealing with numerous people, particularly young women um, with, with young families and that, who are genuinely afraid to leave their homes and, and fear, you know, it's the, the, the fear of the unknown in, in this particular case. Today on the Indo-Daily, Ireland's most feared sexual predator, Larry Murphy, the beast of Bolton glass. I asked him, Larry... You've been accused of some of the most appalling crimes in history. Have you any comment to make? Are you an innocent man? Why is every woman so scared of you? And he sort of looked at me for a brief second. He smirked. He turned away. And he said nothing. In 2010, Larry Murphy walked out of a prison a free man after serving 10 and a half years for the abduction, multiple rape and attempted murder of a young Carlo woman. Now, her ordeal took place on an evening in February in 2000 when she was brutally attacked and brought to the foothills of the Wicklow Mountains. Since then, Murphy, dubbed the Beast of Bolton Glass, has repeatedly resurfaced over renewed claims he may know what happened to Deirdre Jacob, a Kildare woman who disappeared and who has never been found. I'm Siobhan Maguire and today I'm joined by Paul Williams, Special Investigations Correspondent at the Irish Independent, to find out more about Larry Murphy, these ongoing links to some of Ireland's biggest unsolved murder cases, and find out exactly where he is now. Larry Murphy is without doubt the most feared sexual predator in Ireland, and he is the ultimate bogeyman. Larry Murphy never spoke about his crime or other crimes while he was in prison here for the past 10 years to fellow inmates, prison officers or Garthy who sought to interview him. When his brother asked him why he did what he did, he told him he had simply flipped out. And I'd come home and I'd say to my partner, I asked him this question today, such a question today, and he just told me I flipped. I'm not happy with that answer. I'm going back again. And I'd go back again and I'd ask the same questions and I get the same answers. I flipped, I flipped, I flipped. 
Paul, when you hear the name Larry Murphy, it gives us chills. His crime against a Carlo woman in 2000, which he was subsequently jailed for, was beyond brutal. So this is a monster, a sexual predator uh, that we're talking about today. And he is still living amongst us, right? I think it is probably the most phenomenal case of its type or scenario of its type uh, that I can think of, especially in 40 years in journalism and perhaps in, in, in Irish social history in that we have this man who is identified universally as a predator, a dangerous, twisted sexual predator who attempted to murder his victim. And Paul, we can come back to that that horrific attack in 2000 in a minute or two. I just want you to kind of give us an idea of who Larry Murphy was prior to this awful attack. I'm curious, as are probably a lot of people, to know what he was like growing up as a regular kid, as a boy. Did he get involved in the usual rough and tumble or was there anything that perhaps suggested there was something not quite right. He wasn't like other children. No, he was your normal boy or child growing up, he was. He was no different than any other kid football. and He run and played the same as everybody else and mixed in with other kids in the community. What sort of relationship did you have with him and your sisters? And, and what relationship did he have with his parents? Was it normal? Yes, a normal relationship with his all. I suppose you would get in, he comes from within the same uh, paradigm as Graham Dwyer, a Mr. Nobody. Everybody knows who Graham Dwyer is. Every woman in Ireland knows who Graham Dwyer is, but thank God we know where he is and he's locked up and please God he will stay there for a long time. But he was a quintessential Mr. Nobody. Uh, like after his, uh, he was exposed and, conv- and charged and convicted for this horrific crime against this young woman uh, back in 2000. Um, he... You heard from people, they would say to you, people from Baltic Glass, the beast of Baltic Glass, he's now known as, in County Wicklow, like there were telltales. There were certain things about him. He was very weird. He was always traveling around. He was kept very low profile, kept to himself. He was seen as a bit of an oddball. But within that, there was nothing really that distinguished him from anybody else. Because Bolton Glass, it's a lovely, quaint little village, you know. And um, Larry Murphy at the time, he was he was a carpenter, right? He was he was married. He had kids. Just because Bolton Glass is a beautiful place, and I absolutely agree with you on that, Siobhan, it doesn't mean it can't produce a monster. Um, and that's the one thing about you know the whole study of of the psychology serial killers. They're always Mr. Nobodies. They're not people that stick out. They don't have a big sign on their head. I am an evil monster. Um, And that's the thing that scares people so much. So he was very much a Mr. Nobody. He was working, and of course this is part of the uh, investigation into the the disappearance and murder of Deirdre Jacob in uh, 98. And it is that, uh, you know, he was traveling around, he was working in different places. Uh, he had about four or five jobs on at the same time. But the point about it was that he kept such a low profile. He never came to attention of anybody. Larry Murphy, I mean, he had siblings of his own and they were as horrified as everyone else. And the details of, of what he had done to that woman in 2000 came out. And indeed, you know, they've essentially written him off as well. Absolutely. His family completely um, disowned him in in spectacular form because his poor brother, I remember feeling so sorry for him back in 2010, he felt compelled to go on national television. He's most definitely not coming to me. And there's three of my sisters that has come to me, to come to me today, to ask me, to explain to the people 
of Bottenglass and the neighbouring areas that Larry won't be coming to stay with them. Now there's one sister that's living in Bottenglass and the other two sisters are living in Kildare and he is not going to them nor they won't accept them. I think he feared for himself and his family that they were going to be attacked or burned out of their homes. Such was the level of fear and and uh, revulsion against this, the beast of Baldy Glass because he came from amongst this community. The community completely rejected him as well. Gardaí have moved to calm public fears about the release of sex offender Larry Murphy by saying they're confident they know of his whereabouts. Residents of Murphy's hometown held a public meeting last night after the 45-year-old walked free from Arbor Hill Prison. He'd served ten and a half years for the rape and attempted murder of a woman and is a suspect in other murders. And that was that was obviously a very painful time for his family. And one of the things is that, again, about Larry Murphy is like a classic, like all classic narcissists, he feels terribly sorry for himself. He always tells people, and I do know this for a fact, that he complained that, you know, his family have turned against him. His community has turned against him. Uh, the media are against him. Everyone, nobody, everyone's against him. Everyone's accusing him. It's totally unfair. Um, and he feels very much in the category of a victim. Let's talk about the events of uh, that February evening in the year 2000. Can you talk us through what happened? We go back to eight o'clock on Friday, February the 11th, 2000. Um, this young woman in Carlowtown, she had her own business. She was walking uh, towards her car in a car park. Now, everything that happened on this particular night supports the view that Murphy had clearly planned every aspect of what he was going to do. It also supports the, the hypothesis and the theory that he is a serial killer, that he has done this before. This woman was walking to her car. She spotted this man. He came racing towards her. He demanded money. She had money in her bag. He knew, clearly knew her movements and what she'd been doing that day. Before she could resist, he, he punched her in the face, uh, bundled her into her own car, and he drove it then a few metres to a corner of the darkened corner of the car park uh, in Carlow Town, out of sight of passersby, uh, where he had left his own car. He took her, he stripped her, he bound and gagged uh, his victim. He bundled her into his car. Then he drove to a dirt track about 10 miles north of Carlow, where he raped her for the first time. After that, he, he forced this poor woman into the boot and he drove into the mountainous terrain of the Glen of Amal. Now, I have been down there and I spent a lot of time in the Glen of Amal through the years. The Glen of Amal is quite close to Baltiglas. He would have known this terrain very, very well. Um, he stopped on an isolated track and he basically, and he'd been, a, he'd been a hunter himself, so he would have known this terrain very well. He raped his, his victim twice in this location and then it Basically, she fought him off, tried to fight him off, and he was in the process of suffocating her. Um, but she made a frantic bid to get away. She was naked and badly beaten, and she was covered in blood, and she went on her hands and knees and got in, in, entangled in barbed wire. Now, there were two men in the area uh, doing what's called lamping foxes. They were out hunting, and they heard this noise. And at first, one of the reports was that they thought it was a fox screaming and then discovered it was a woman. And they had very heavy, big lamps for, for blinding uh, animals and killing them. Um, they, this car suddenly started up and drove past them and they spotted the man in the driver's seat and it was 
fellow called Larry Murphy, who they knew personally from the local the local area. And then they found this woman and they brought her to the police. And then this incredible story of depravity uh, was uncovered, particularly though what everybody agrees on, and there is absolutely no doubt about, is that Larry Murphy brought this woman to this spot to murder her that night. He was comfortable in this. This is what they would call in, in the, uh, you know, the psychology of serial killers. This would be very much would conform with the theory that this was a killing field. A killing field is where they feel comfortable that they can bury their ev- the evidence and it'll never be found. Um, he was taken in the next morning uh, to, by the police. He was questioned. He admitted parts he claimed that he had consensual sex with this woman after he had raped her, which is an extraordinary uh, yeah. claim to make. And uh, so he he softened, tried in a very bizarre way to soften what he had done, but that was it. He never offered any further explanations. His wife and family had nothing more to do with him after that. He pleaded guilty at the earliest opportunity. He went to prison. He was what is referred to as a model prisoner in Arbor Hill, which houses sex offenders. And he did his time and he got out of prison just before the, the legislation was introduced to make it, to, to force um, sex offenders onto, you know, to, a, a sex offenders register was established shortly after his release, but he was not uh, subject to that. The Guard, the Sex Offenders Management and Intelligence Unit has already a plan in place for Larry Murphy. He's been classified as a high-risk sex offender he must give the Gardaí his address within the next seven days and his new one if he changes it. He must tell them if he wants to leave the country and give them his address abroad. Gardaí will visit him at least once a month and any Garda who deals with him will file a detailed report. His file will be constantly updated to include his photograph, movements, activities and relationships. And Gardaí say any changes in his lifestyle or circumstances which cause concern will be noted and acted upon immediately. And from that he left and he disappeared so we served 10 and a half years of a 15 year sentence paul and afterwards um i mean it it caused quite a lot of of fear in communities across ireland because people were a little concerned about where this this uh, sex offender this sex pervert would then live. There's been so much media attention in, in this uh, particular case. Um, I mean, I've been dealing with numerous people, particularly young women um, with, with young families and that, who are genuinely afraid to leave the homes and, and fear, you know, it's the, the, the fear of the unknown in, in this particular case. There's been different quotes attributed to uh, Larry Murphy's own brother in which he, he states that, you know, he is fearful um, that Larry Murphy could and, and would reoffend. So I suppose they're, they're reading these stories looking at, at the news reports and, you know, they're, they're taking an awful lot of heed from, from um, the concerns of Larry Murphy's own, own brother. And actually an awful lot of your work concentrated on trying to, to actually find where Larry Murphy uh, was, where he was staying. There was a very um, interesting report you did for uh, the midweek show on TV3 back in 2012, where you basically followed him and found him in Amsterdam. We monitored his home, a one-bedroom apartment here on the outskirts of the city. The open window leading us to believe that he was either there or nearby. And sure enough, we spotted him again. 
Minutes later, Larry, who appears to be always on his guard, returned alone to his rented apartment. After months of following and watching, we now knew exactly where Larry Murphy lived. Yeah, but uh, myself and uh, two of my colleagues, uh, Porrick O'Reilly and Kieran McGowan, um, we set about in the summer of 2012. Um, so we had kept an eye out for him, and so we got more information as to where he was in Amsterdam, and we started watching him. We watched him on and off for over two months. His best friend, he was working in a log- logistics firm on the outskirts of Amsterdam, and he was working his... We the, the guys were taking photographs. We rode him back on numerous occasions once we had him housed and, and take look at him for three or four days and then come back. But this guy turned out to be an Irishman and he was another sex offender called Rory O'Connor. And he had been convicted and served time with uh, Larry Murphy. He had been convicted of uh, falsely imprisoning two innocent women in an apartment, women he didn't know in an apartment in uh, Rap Mines and he held them at knife point and he repeatedly raped them. It was a horrific crime. But they would they would spend a lot of time together. They would socialize together. They didn't socialize with anybody else. They'd go off. This guy had a scooter. O'Connor had a scooter. And they would mooch around, go fishing. And then they would go for a few beers. They didn't go near the red light district or anything like that has been claimed before because they weren't that stupid. Um, they would go away for weekends together. But they also would spend two days over the weekend, say Friday, maybe to Sunday, and getting takeaways in Larry's apartment. Um, so they had this very bizarre relationship and of course we were watching it from a distance but this guy Rory O'Connor just to put in perspective this guy is a, a, a horrific creature himself uh, because he went on to murder his f- partner uh, his fiance in uh, Scotland and is now serving I think 15 years for that appalling crime but if anybody knows the secrets of Larry Murphy it's him but also you would have to ask yourself as well if Larry Murphy was an innocent man if this was one behavioural aberration the attack this appalling attack on this woman uh, if that was just an aberration which nobody would accept there's no psychiatrist in the world would accept that but if it was and you were trying to give him the benefit of the doubt then you'd have to look at the company he was keeping what was he doing with this other violent sex, sexual offender and sexual predator in Amsterdam? The morning after the show, we got calls from television stations in Amsterdam asking if they could use the midweek footage to warn their viewers Murphy was in the city. Dutch websites soon had the latest photos of him, taken from the previous night's midweek. This one asked readers how much they really knew about their neighbours while a third website spoke about the dangerous Irish criminal who lives and works in Amsterdam. One of the things we hear about Larry Murphy um, that's actually quite chilling in itself, Paul, is the fact that when he was in prison, he didn't avail of any treatment and he has never shown remorse for what he has done. Uh, No remorse, no explanation. The second time I got up beside him is in Amsterdam when I did go to talk to him. Uh, we waited for him and this is the thing about him as well again that that I think fuels the speculation about this guy uh, is that he is constantly constantly on alert for somebody walking up to him on doorstep in him as we say in the business out of the blue and asking him a question because he I got up beside him I asked him the same questions that I asked him at Dublin airport uh, a year earlier over a year earlier He, he made some kind of funny noise. He smirked again. And it's not like, uh-huh, something like this. Because I got right upside him. He got such a shock. But he literally, in, this, in the flicker of an eyelid, he turned on, on the toes of one of his feet. 
and he was gone. He disappeared in the other direction. Now, we got back to the apartment. We had another guy watching the apartment. We saw him coming back to the apartment to a different route. He never, ever has offered any explanation. He's not subject to the sex offenders register. He did not avail, as you're right, of any treatment. He has explained nothing. And I think that is what fueled a lot of the speculation around him. One of the interesting things about the current case and the reason why he's back in the news is that he, the file was sent to the DPP. The Gardaí of been on this case for 20 years because when he was arrested after this appalling attack in uh, on this woman and he was arrested and brought to the, the Garda station in 2000 um, there was an operation called Operation Trace had been set up under the, under the leadership of, of Tony Hickey and the then Garda Commissioner Pat Byrne which was to, to set up to, to investigate the, mis, the disappearance of seven women they're referred to as the Ireland's missing women and it started with Annie McCarrick and it ended um, with uh, dear to Jacob. Now, interestingly, um, they started looking at him in a big way because after he was arrested, no more women went missing. Uh, which again is, it's only purely circumstantial uh, and speculative, so you can't actually bring that into a court of law. But he is the strongest suspect for Dear to Jacob. And this is based on number one, the fact that there was old CCTV. Again, it's a chilling thing to think back on that before, say, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, when the digital age really took hold, we didn't have the technology to track these guys the way we can today. Nowadays, of course, they fight and they give out and say this, we're infringing their privacy. But CCTV was unearthed and was, was the cold case. There's been cold case reviewed several times, but the most recent one, the Guardian have carried out. It was what the Guardi admit is a deliberately vague statement because although we know uh, that really this was uh, led by or initiated by the Deirdre Jacob investigation, they say they're searching for uh, any evidence in relation to, dis- to the disappearance of a number of women. Now, Operation Trace a number of years ago was set up to look into the case of six missing women, but there have been a total of 11 uh, unsolved uh, missing cases in relation to women for that period from 1988 up to 2000. Basically, they sent to do a highly specialised organisation in the UK and they studied it and, and worked very hard, extensively on it. They could say only there was a moderate prospect that um, the person in this CCTV, a male who was seen in the vicinity of Deirdre Jacob before she went missing, and may have been stalking her, was Larry Murphy. Moderate. Then there are two uh, two inmates in Arbor Hill. One of them is since dead, but they, they've come forward at different stages to say he admitted killing people. That one of the things is that, that the allegation made it that he, he had bragged about pulling up beside Deirdre Jacob when she was on her way home, walking home on that particular day on July the 28th, 1998. He asked for directions, punched her, dragged her into the car and held her down and then took her away. Um, he also alleged that they never find the DNA, they never find any evidence. Now, that was one of those prisoners is dead, the other prisoner is out. The problem with them as, as witnesses is that without corroboration, without other evidence, there was no way he could, Barry Murphy could be charged based on that. The, the Gardaí put the file together. They believe, absolutely believe, that he is their man. But the problem is the evidence. They can't reach the, 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 this very high level, the high threshold uh, in the criminal law. You have to be able to prove beyond all reasonable doubt uh, that this person did this. There's guards investigating this now who weren't even around at the time, who weren't in, certainly in service at the time. And I always take comfort from the words of an old detective 
uh, that I knew many years ago, an own murder detective. And um, he always made the point, he said, the bones of the dead always cry out for justice. He told me that around the time that I uh, that I wrote, I wrote a book about uh, uh, the uh, Graham Dwyer, the murder of Elaine O'Hara. You know, Elaine O'Hara, the way her case was solved was extraordinary. It was unprecedented. It was like something of a Stephen King novel. So we always have to take um, some kind of comfort out of that. Eventually, justice will prevail. I always do believe that eventually justice will prevail. And my thanks to Paul Williams, Special Investigations Correspondent at the Irish Independent for joining me today. I'm Siobhan Maguire and this episode was produced by myself, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, recording and sound design by John Smith. Archive clips from TV3's Midweek in 2012 TV3, RTE News Reports and Independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.